Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Health Points, where we talk about anything and everything gamification health. Joining us today is Robert, who is professional of social and economic psychology at the University of Vienna in Austria, and a part-time professor of applied social psychology and behavioral science at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. He has a PhD in psychology from the University of Jena, and has studied psychology and intercultural communication at Chemnitz University of Technology. And also with Robert is Asker, who is assistant professor in human-centered data science at IT University of Copenhagen, he has a PhD in computer science from the University of Copenhagen, where he completed his postdoc at the Department of Psychology. Hello and welcome to both of you to join on today's episode. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. I'm going to bring in Pete. Do you want to come and say hi as co-host on today? Hi, everyone. It's great to have our two guests this week as well. So the reason we invited you both, Robert and Asker, is because of the publication on the role of VR for vaccination rates. It'd be great to know a bit of your background and what was the design for the study itself? Yeah, I guess that's a, there's a, a long answer and a short answer to that. But uh, in, in the light of uh, today's planning, I'll, I'll go for the long one. Please uh, interrupt me if it becomes too long. Uh, so, sort of the background from my perspective is that I uh, I did a, a master's degree in computer science, uh, pretty traditional computer science topics such as uh, algorithms and programming, data structures, uh, linear algebra, that that sort of uh, of, of science. And uh, during the end of my master's and and then my PhD, I transitioned into to more sort of human-centered computer science uh, that involves the intersection of psychology and and computer science. So. Um, namely using uh, software and using uh, software development practices to to create uh, environments and create experimental platforms that can uh, inform behavioral science uh, uh, yes and and that you could say like i i got interested in, in psychology that way without having a an actual professional training in psychology so once i finished my phd i figured that it was um, it was time to get more sort of uh, the appropriate scientific uh, training in, in the field of, of behavioral, behavioral sciences. So uh, yeah, I searched for, for research positions in the Copenhagen area. I had just gotten a, a child and was not very uh, uh, keen on, on moving. And, uh, and I had also done some, some, uh, some VR research during my PhD. It was not the main topic of my PhD, but it was a technology I had sort of uh, uh, slipped over. Um, for, for various reasons that we can get back to, but uh, but I found a, a lab at University of Copenhagen in the Department of Psychology that um, exclusively did behavioral research using virtual reality with the um, associate professor Guido Kransky, and uh, I got in touch with him and, and got a postdoc position there. Um, and I, I remember writing in the application that I wanted to do psychology research with with actual psychologists because I I think at the time I, I figured that I was. Uh, sort of a cowboy psychologist myself, uh, but I had never received any formal training. So that way it was, it was, uh, it was about time. Um, and I think Robert joined the Department of Psychology around the same time. It might have been uh, a month later or a month uh, before that, but I remember I always parted this there. Um, it was pre-pandemic and I was setting up uh, like several uh, experiments in, in the lab there physically and we had participants come in and um, then the pandemic hit and uh, we were forced to 
sort of find new ways to conduct research in this space. And, uh, and that was when we came up with the idea of, of doing uh, online research with uh, virtual reality. Timely, it, it fit pretty well because uh, at the time, uh, Oculus had just come out with a consumer-oriented headset that was gaining quite a lot of traction. Um, so even though we didn't have a lot of experience with running uh, studies this way, we, we felt pretty confident that uh, it was a, a valid way to, to source data. And um, I mean, in terms of the experimental design and why we decided to run it that way, that was, uh, that was the main motivation. I think there are other reasons that why, why that fit pretty well for, for the research that we carried out. But, uh, but from my perspective, at least coming from a technical background, transitioning into that space uh, with the pandemic hit, uh, hitting was, uh, was how that all uh, sort of fit together at the time. I guess needs must. And I guess that's the great thing about some of the projects through the pandemic is it wasn't a plan. It was just, well, we have to deliver something. We're going to approach it in this way. So there was uh, complete jumps forward in delivery of different research that I've heard of and colleagues uh, speak of. So I'm glad. <laughs> it's no surprises that you responded in that way. Uh, Robert, what was your experience of setting up and delivering remotely in that case? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I just want to kind of mirror what Aska said, just exactly from the opposite direction. So I'm a behavioral scientist, uh, a psychologist by training. And for a long time, I care about how people make health decisions, all kinds of health decisions, particularly uh, vaccination decisions. And um, actually, uh, together with the PI of the virtual learning hab, lab at the University of Copenhagen, it was just a lucky accident that we were put on the same floor. I never wore a VR headset before that. And so I was like doing all along. I mean, the pandemic was, of course, scientifically a great time. And it still is for me, yeah, um, for someone who's doing vaccination uh, research. And then we thought, well, not only during the pandemic, but, uh, but even before, we always have the problem how to communicate certain messages, right? How can we get people to understand the value of vaccination for themselves, but also for others, right? All the indirect benefits that come with it. And we realized that it's much actually pretty complicated to communicate it because concepts like, say, herd immunity, they sound easy. I mean, two years ago, no one knew what it is. Now people have a rough understanding, but still people don't really understand what's going on there. I mean, you have to see it's a complex network pattern that we are talking about. And then as it is, right, you're on the same floor, you have coffee together, you have lunches together. Then I met with Aske and Guido and we just thought, okay, maybe VR is a very good environment to, first of all, communicate pretty complex issues to let people experience them that are more difficult to explain. Just put them in the shoes of, say, someone who is vulnerable and let them experience that. Or on the other hand, we also thought... Well, actually, we could maybe not only as we typically do this with lab experiments, but given that we were all in kind of a lockdown situation, maybe we could roll out such an uh, intervention based on VR even online. And that was something that we all got pretty excited about, uh, what eventually led to the paper we're talking about today. I suppose one of the great things about that is also it massively increased the ecological validity. Because this is genuinely how people will interact with a service rather than going into a lab and putting on a headset. They will just be at home and interacting through whether it is the metaverse or whatever. But it must increase the how translatable your results were because it's a pragmatic intervention. 
Yeah, and actually we didn't have this in mind because I mean this this whole project is embedded in a in a larger third-party funded project. And when we applied for it, we thought, oh, let's do some stuff on I don't know uh, influenza, right? And then we were hit by the pandemic, right? And <laughs> in the end, we didn't do any of the intervention studies on influenza, but all of them were on COVID. And of course, the cool thing about it is that it was not only say. At the beginning, we thought really it's a scientific interest. Can we make or use this method um, in this context? Could it be a complementary method compared to standard vaccination communication? And in the end, it was even more than the scientific interest because it had actual impact, something that we didn't consider at the beginning that would actually be the main goal of the project. But it turned out that some people actually really got vaccinated because they participated in our intervention. In that case, it would be great if you can talk us through what was the VR intervention, um, what did they experience, uh, and some of the preliminary findings that you had from that. Sure. Uh, I, I mean, I think one of one of the coolest things about this particular intervention is that it's, it's so truly interdisciplinary, and and when you look at it, you can see sort of the um, the, the traditions that each of the authors brought to the table. So uh, Robert has a, a long research tradition in in, in vaccination behavior. I I don't, have, but I worked across other sort of cognitive psychology domains. And, and one of the, the things that I was particularly interested in at the time was, was embodiment. So the experience of you having a, a virtual body that you think is yourself, your own, uh, and how that influences your, your attitudes and behavior. Um, so you can really see from the experimental design and the procedures that we uh, undertook that uh, it encompasses a lot of uh, different sub-traditions within uh, human-computer interaction and behavioral psychology and health psychology. But if I, I'll just walk you through quickly what the participants experienced. Um, we used a, a two-by-two design um, with, with the overall framing of the study. So people would either uh, experience uh, themselves as a young person or an old person. So that was the first experimental uh, manipulation we had. And then um, people would uh, be immersed in this uh, bathroom where they would uh, put on a facial mask and they would wash their hands and they would dry their hands in preparation for a consultancy with a general practitioner. Um, so just before they went into the doctor's office, they would uh, prepare as we did uh, during lockdown uh, to get familiar uh, with the uh, virtual body that they were assigned. And then inside the, the GP's office, um, the doctor would then go on to explain um, about COVID and about vaccination uh, against COVID. Uh, but for half of the participants, and this would be the other experimental manipulation, the doctor would then either explain the individual benefits of uh, getting vaccinated or the individual and social benefits of getting vaccinated. So we would have these two. Uh, variables that we manipulated, either the body of the, of the participants or the uh, information about uh, vaccinations. Uh, and, um, and that was uh, sort of the, the, the packaging that we delivered this intervention. So within the, the intervention, there was uh, the doctor would hand over a, a virtual iPad that has had this simulation of, of how uh, the concept of, of herd immunity um, or the, the simulation would explain the concept of herd immunity, uh, which was a simulation that was heavily inspired by uh, Robert's previous research, uh, particularly uh, papers uh, published in uh, Nature Human Behavior. Um, so, so the intervention would uh, include various aspects uh, that were like empirically found to influence uh, vaccination behavior. 
And that way we designed the study in, in a way that um, we hoped it would uh, increase the pro-social behavior as much as possible. And then throughout the study, we would ask participants about their uh, attitudes towards uh, vaccination, both before they did the study and afterwards. And then we would uh, contact them again two weeks later to see if their uh, vaccination behavior would uh, persist in that light, just to, to give you some headlines for, for the findings. We we found a 8 to 9% increase in, in vaccination result, uh, vaccination rates or the intention to vaccinate as direct result of, of the intervention. And uh, that translates to roughly 60% of the people who participated in our study who were more likely to vaccinate after they participated than before. And then we also inquired about their vaccination intentions uh, two weeks later and found that those who had an increase in vaccination rate because of our study had an even higher uh, vaccination intention two weeks later. So you can see the people who were affected by our intervention, they were the, uh, those who also had the uh, highest increase even two weeks later, showing uh, longer term effects of, of this uh, digital intervention. If I just, because I guess you, you, you would ask the same thing. That was something that fascinated me. I mean, I was expecting that we find a short-term effect, right? Something, uh, because this was all built on previous evidence. And basically, we used very similar intervention materials that have been used outside of VR before, right? But to see that such an intervention effect would carry on even two weeks later, that is something I was really surprised about. I mean, of course, it shrinks. This is no question. But I mean, it's basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, Aske, but the intervention was like five to 10 minutes or something, like 10 minutes probably. Mm, around and, 10 minutes, yeah. And if you have like a, an effect two weeks later on the attitude of people, that is something that uh, even the best interventions typically are not able to, to do. One of the things I'm fascinated by in the experience you've described in, the, in these interventions is how blatant or how subtle are they? Because I'm thinking about how that impacts gameplay. Well, I wouldn't say they are particularly subtle, but that's not the point uh, either. I mean, uh, you invite people to participate in a study that is about vaccination against COVID. Uh, so we're not trying to, to hide our agenda. But, um, but like in experimental design uh, terms, this was a between participant study. So we would have experimental uh, groups uh, that completely differed between participants. So in that way, uh, you know, analyzing uh, findings uh, means that um, particular uh, manipulations uh, can be analyzed independently or independently because independently because, uh, you know, participants are given uh, different experimental um, uh, interventions. One thing also that leapt out, I'm, I'm interested to know if you've got the answer to this one is you talked about the two, two by two approach. Do you, were you tracking like um, a difference? Was it more likely of a behavior change if they played as someone different to their own age? Like if a child played as an adult or an adult played as a child, or was it better if they were personified as themselves? Yeah. So actually we, we, we did measure two different things. First of all, we measured the vaccination intention uh, as the embodied person, the person they were embodied with, right? And uh, then we looked, well, if you would say communicate individual level benefits, is that, say, more effective if you're embodied as an old or a young person? 
And we indeed found some matching effects in the obvious direction. Of course, we know that uh, COVID is a bigger threat to all the people. So if you communicated only uh, the individual benefit information, this was particularly helpful if you were embodied as an old person. But what was a bit surprising is that uh, independent of the, say, game-like vaccination intention, we also asked for the participants' own, their very personal vaccination intention before and after the treatment. And although we found these matching effects within the simulation, the spillover effect to the own personal vaccination intention was independent of that. So basically, they realized that, okay, vaccination may serve, say, different goals for different population groups, older or younger people, but in the end, the spillover to the own uh, vaccination intention was always there and was always positive, irrespective of in which conditions uh, the participants were. Yeah, but also to uh, sort of reflect on, on your question uh, of having uh, old people embodied as young and young as old. Um, I mean, there's a certain demographics that are uh, interested or are um, owners of media equipment. And that's something that we were very knowledgeable about before designing the study. And we've, we've tried to, uh, we've definitely not uh, been hiding the, the demographics from our our data. And that's uh, sort of has been reflected in the experimental design, namely that we have mostly male and young participants. So we don't have a lot of very uh, senior participants experiencing this as, as young, but, but rather the opposite way around. Uh, and for us, this was a, a motivation for, for, for reaching a specific demo, uh, demographics that are also actually uh, um, likely to be um, less inclined to uh, vaccinate against COVID. Um, so in that sense, um, our results are mostly that direction and, and not the other one. Robert, you mentioned how the longevity of the effect on someone, that even two weeks later, they were still displaying these just change in health behavior. One of the parts of the intervention is that in the virtual reality, they watch a video on a, a virtual reality iPad explaining herd immunity, how the interaction works. What would you expect to see, or have there been research published on just someone having an actual iPad and seeing that video? And kind of what is the difference in the longevity of change in behavior? Because I think what I'm trying to pick at here is if you're going to spend 10 minutes educating someone, what is the power of putting them in a VR world as opposed to giving them the iPad and the video? Yes, uh, that's a very good question. And of course, uh, we were curious to answer this one as well. So we actually did a follow-up study. This was a study where the, the intervention itself differed a bit. We thought, okay, let's more gamify the experience. Let's basically what we did in this study that we just described is it is as a normal GP doctor visit, but just in VR, right? Uh, and of course, with the advantage that you can embody yourself in a very different, with a very different avatar, right? But then we thought, okay, let's get some more gamified elements and what in a follow-up study what we did is actually that people had to cross a square again either as an old or young per per person and had to try to avoid to get infected and the other people on the square where either many of them were vaccinated or few of them were vaccinated and while playing it through and basically running uh, over the square they realized oh it's much easier to not get infected if many other people are vaccinated, right? So it's kind of a more gamified uh, version of this intervention. And what we did in this particular experiment is that we 
compared this intervention to a standard, as you described it, where we actually handed out iPads to people and gave them very similar to the first study, basic information uh, about, say, how the disease spreads when there are few or many people vaccinated. And we did find that both interventions, say the classic 2D uh, iPad intervention and the VR intervention, both increased vaccination intentions. But the, the VR intervention was three times as effective than the classic VR intervention, uh, than the classic uh, tablet intervention, right? So basically, if you really increased high immersiveness uh, with the strong gamified element, it appeared that the, say, the intervention effect is stronger than the mere communication of what herd immunity means and how it works on a tablet. That's really interesting. How did you go about designing something that would make it feel like it was a much more immersive personification of themselves? Well, first off, I think that the temporality uh, is reversed compared to what you uh, sort of insinuated before. So it's not about um, taking content from VR and testing whether it works in 2D. It was actually the opposite. I mean, there's strong empirical evidence for, for this sort of material in 2D uh, working for this uh, behavioral uh, change. And then we're uh, testing whether it works in 3D and to what extent it works even better. Uh, so, so that's uh, sort of the historical uh, development. So we're not, but uh, but to but to your uh, to your question, how we actually designed uh, as a simulation or uh, intervention that would have the highest amount of uh, behavioral change. Um, so, so the the lab uh, Robert uh, referred to before the virtual learning lab at KU has been uh, dealing with this question for for many years uh, outside of. Uh, uh, health psychology, but but more in, in general for for psychological experiments, uh, in particular for for educational psychology, and um, and there are uh, has been developed a series of uh, empirical uh, results that uh, that shows how to design these uh, experiences to foster the best presence and the best uh, experience of of being there uh, essentially, and um, and they're mostly non-technical and I, I found that super fascinating i think we've, we've reached a point where 3d graphics is I mean, we never say it's good enough because it always it become uh, it's not photorealistic at this point in, in in real time but it's become good enough that it's actually not your primary concern your primary concern is not algorithms and textures and uh, uh photorealism it's it's all about uh uh, designing experiences that are uh, meaningful to people and that's where uh, psychology comes in handy because there's just a, a range of theories that are much older than VR that still uh, applies to, to designing these interventions and then there are contemporary uh, research from 3D uh, interfaces uh, with psychology that has uh, resulted in, in design guidelines that you can uh, simply just follow. So would you say you more follow the design guidelines or look at the theories and if so which theories? Well, yeah. So, of course, embodied cognition is, is one theory that uh, that I find particularly interesting. I think it's one of the the theories that are um, like harder to just follow uh, rather than what I experienced or I explained about before that are uh, sort of contemporary human computer interaction uh, design guidelines that are all about which manipulation types or which interaction styles are, are most uh, natural to people and which sort of uh, design elements changing uh, your attention in a meaningful way or in a uh, in a way that's actually uh, taking away your attention from the content that you want people to look at um, so I, I think it's it's a mix of like more philosophical uh, contemporary psychology and then uh, 
what I would call more uh, applicable or uh, human-computer interaction-related uh, uh, theories that are um, that are mostly design guidelines that you can sort of adhere to to uh, to optimize your intervention strategy. Yeah, and maybe to add to that, so. I mean, I'm not at all an expert in how to uh, increase high embodiment and stuff like that. But I mean, one of the natural problems, if you want to communicate, say, the social benefits of vaccination is, well, people only care about it if they have some social preferences, right? If they care about others. So how can you make such an intervention or such a game attractive to people who don't care, right? Who only care about themselves. Right. And one idea that we had is, well, let's make some game, some kind of competitive orientation. And typically competitive orientation is inversely related to, say, pro-social concerns. So what we told them, well, go over the square and try not to get infected. Right. So we made a game so people could gain higher points, the more successful they are. And this is a very simple way of how to bring in and get people, say, engaging with these vaccination materials, which they normally would not at all do because it's not interesting how other people would benefit from it. But in this case, you, they could follow their natural motivation of doing good, doing better than others. Um, and basically, on the backyard, we also transport some important information that this also relates to vaccination, right? So that is kind of one idea that we had, that uh, this intervention is not only limited to people who are pro-social in the first place, but even, even to people who are, say, more competitively oriented. That's really interesting. I'm going to summarize that and like completely mangle it by saying, so what you're saying is people who don't care about others are quite competitive, potentially. And so triggering that competitive bit kind of makes you care about others just in so much as it affects you personally because you're competing. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. At least it makes you engaging with materials where you learn how others may benefit, which you normally would not do in the first place, because if you would realize, well, it's not about me, why should I engage with these materials, right? And that was going to be one of my next questions. I'm reminded of for all of this is the statesman and scientist Benjamin Franklin with the quote around, tell me and I forget, teach me I, I may remember, involve me and I learn. And having such an immersive experience is part of the reason why seemingly people are truly learning and having that embedded as a behavior or at least a learning point for weeks on end. And my question was going to be, if this intervention is 10 minutes, how do you convince people to take 10 minutes out of scrolling TikTok to go and do something immersive if they are by chance wearing an Oculus headset and immersed in the metaverse. But so your point being is that for health education to truly be delivered, potentially in the future, in the metaverse, if people are regularly using this, it's creating games. An agenda is evidently something about health, but within that game, when people are truly immersed, truly engaged, that's when you can drip feed health educational points. That, I mean, I don't know what Asuka thinks about it, but I can tell you that would be my long-term vision. This is why we did this whole project. We just wanted to basically prove the concept that you can communicate pretty complex health information. And I mean, it's not to underestimate how complex these, say, social network effects are, right? How herd immunity really works. It's pretty complex. And so how can you make people engage with this information? And I, my vision is if in the future people work with 
AR or VR environments, then it's much easier to implement such kind of interventions or use this technology to more effectively communicate this information. No, and I, I second that. I mean, I think the motivation behind the project and using gamification is is uh, super interesting. But but I just wanted to add to that that um, uh, we've been running a lot of virtual reality experiments over the past years, and uh, some of them have quite frankly been rather boring because uh, they've been about you know details of interaction. Say you have a few bricks. Uh, should I design it this way or this way to foster the best learning? And uh, and as for many studies, with the studies, we, we paid participants to participate and that was a way to motivate them. But um, the amount of emails I received afterwards uh, about how fun and engaging and uh, wonderful an experience it was is something that I've never tried before with any empirical research that I've uh, conducted. Um, and uh, we could also see from the, uh, from the interest in participating in the study, uh, I mean, we had several hundred participants in, in a matter of just a few days. Uh, shows that um, it was not the $10 that we offered people that was driving the motivation in participating. And uh, of course, we talk about gamification and it should be fun and engaging. But I mean, this was actually not a, a game in, in a traditional sense. Uh, so the second study, Robert, uh, talked about where you cross the square has more uh, traditional game-like mechanics. But the paper that we uh, initially uh, discussed, that you can't really win. Uh, there's no points. Uh, you are engaging with a virtual uh, general practitioner that is explaining you um, information about viruses. And even so, people found it extremely amusing to, uh, to participate, even though it was just 10 minutes. Um, and I found this an inspiration for doing further studies as well. That doesn't have to be uh, a traditional game in the sense that you can win and you have points and you can uh, do bad or good. Uh, it can merely just be an engaging and meaningful experience uh, that, that makes you... Um, you know, information and uh, the pandemic uh, in, in order to make people uh, engage with it and ultimately, uh, uh, you know, uh, not uh, pro-social behavior. Can I add something? Just in terms of the motivation, I mean, we were really concerned about will people... I mean, vaccination is not a particularly cool topic, right? I mean, the goal somehow of our project was make vaccination cool again, right? Uh, by these technologies and these gamification elements. And at the beginning, we thought, okay, we need to pay them a lot, right? And we did, actually. Uh, but then, like the second study, we actually run in a public park, park in Copenhagen. We just put out down a tent and people just like passerby people attended there. And I mean, to some of them, we offered them soft drinks. And uh, so, but many said, oh, I just want to participate. I want to experience VR and I don't care about the soft drink. And then a third study that we just completed was actually run as part of the exhibition of the uh, Museum for Natural History in Berlin, one of the largest museums of natural history uh, in Europe. And we were part of the exhibition. And also there we had small gifts and people didn't care. People just said, okay, let's run, let's try to experience that in VR. I mean, this may change, right? In 10 years or so, when people are not that excited about VR anymore, right? We need to work with different incentives. And then also the gamification elements may become much more important, right? It, a boring VR intervention, no one cares about it anymore. But at the moment, I think it's a, a people are just excited about the technology itself. I'm reminded um, a recent episode with Michael, who's the co-creative C Hero Quest, uh, and their ambition was to get 100,000 people to play this game. 
and the game is navigating on a boat uh, to go through uh, spatial awareness and memory. And they had over 4 million people play the game mm. because people got so excited by the game. And as a result, so much data, they got nowhere near processing it all. It's now a public data set. I hope that people will go and analyze it. Yeah. But what I'm wondering here is that seeing as so often running a clinical trial, one of the big challenges is how I'm going to get enough subjects to take part to get the data I need to have the statistical power that I need for everything I'm going to complete. But create a game out of it, people are jumping to kind of come in and be a subject. So, I mean, creating health behaviors is one thing, but maybe in terms of clinical trial, do they just need to gamify interventions or the process to take part in the intervention to increase the number of subjects in the trial anyway? Uh, really interesting. Yeah. I can just say, like, the studies we run are among the largest VR studies ever run. Like, the very first study that we did online, it had roughly, like, 400, 500 participants, right? Um, and then the, even the, the study in the park and in the museum, they all had like several hundred participants, which is very unusual for uh, an intervention study using VR, right? Because it's individual testing. It's quite some effort. Um, and yeah, of course, like the interest in the technology itself um, played a big role in that. Do you have any other gamification projects coming up? Any that you're working on currently? Yeah, so I can say, I mean, Asker probably has much more, but uh, so based on, on the success that we had uh, in this uh, vaccination project, we are now currently working also on antimicrobial resistance, which is also a big issue, right? I mean, in a few decades from now, uh, it will be, I mean, it's already now um, uh, labeled as one of the big 10 uh, threats to global health by WHO. And it's again, it's very complicated, right? How does my intake behavior shape antimicrobial resistance? It's not that easy to understand. And basically from all the lessons learned uh, with vaccination, because it's very similar, it's kind of a social dilemma setting. Uh, we now try to use that in uh, communicating about antimicrobial resistance and develop at the moment a game also with a lot of, uh, so basically a VR intervention with a lot of gamified elements. So it's, it's kind of a first person shooter game where people can shoot on antibiotics and they should do so only if it's a severe disease, but not if it's a mild infection, things like that. So this is something we are in the development phase at the moment. And Asker, how about you? Yeah, no, I have a, a series of, of projects in the pipeline. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily describe them as traditional gamification. So they aren't, they aren't necessarily games where you shoot anything or even win. But I'm, I'm very fascinated about the idea of, of providing uh, meaningful experiences to participants. So they, uh, their motivation for, for participating is, is beyond the merely monetary. Uh, and uh, I, I came across this uh, project that was called Donate a Cry. Uh, and uh, as I told you earlier, I'm on parental leave now, right right now. So everything that I'm doing is has sort of a, a childlike um, umbrella. But I was fascinated by it. It's a way to collect data from from a large pool of participants for for neonatal context that are that are super important for driving forward research about child development and uh, and. Specifically, the usual approach is to record uh, children, children's behavior uh, or infants' behavior in hospital context, and it's super, uh, super uh, hard, and it costs a lot of money, and you need to have uh, trained medical professionals to record uh, children and annotate their, their doings. But if you can 
uh, get parents to do it instead, and you can, uh, you know, uh, provide meaningful uh, responses to the participating uh, uh, participants, for instance, by giving them aggregate statistics of how uh, uh, children are, are doing or, or some, some data that they can um, sort of reflect on uh, themselves from the, their recorded data. Uh, then you can uh, you can collect throngs of, of data on a like much cheaper uh, compared to the traditional methods. So I'm, I'm very um, interested in, in that space of of designing studies where the end goal is, is data collection in itself to uh, to, to foster continued uh, research in a space where data collection is, is usually just very very expensive. Um, and so, of course, you can call it games in, in, in some sense because you you create an incentive structure that uh, is a little bit like a game, but it's not necessarily a traditional game per se in, in, in the way that we know it from the, from the video games and, and so on. I think that's really interesting. You've got potentially a really rich uh, resource there and reward mechanism, which is if you can somehow wrap that data up and give it back to the parents. Mm as a like here's a story of the child's development and display it in a nice way or be able to replay it in an interesting way yeah and now i'm, I'm thinking a lot about babies because i i uh, just had a second one and i'm uh, i'm hopeful and leave but it, it, it it's not only relevant for collecting data around infants it could be expanded to so many other uh, cases where uh, citizens can inform scientific uh, protocols and, and actually get some reward uh, themselves um I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around uh, how it can be applied to uh, diagnosing affective uh, disorders uh, because it's, it's a space where much data is needed and it, it's involving so many people around the world and the current uh, psychometric tools we have are uh, imperfect. So I, I think it's a super interesting space where uh, these remote mechanisms can have uh, ample impact on both uh, research but also uh, health of citizens. I agree, Asker, that it's not your traditional uh, first-person shooter or role-playing game, but what you're describing are game mechanics. Um, there's no doubt sure. about it. And I think the, the key thing of, of health points over the, the last 20 episodes or so now has been a lot of the health gamification isn't about creating first-person shooters where you're shooting microbes and viruses. A lot of it is applying some really interesting game mechanics to everyday interactions with a service or uh, with an intervention. Um, so yes, it may not be your traditional game, but it definitely involves game mechanics. What I'd like to ask you both is from the, the research study in VR we've been talking about and your other projects, what have been your really big learnings in the role of gamification and health or kind of where game mechanics are creating a real difference now and in the future potentially? Should I get started, Asker? Okay, so I think, I mean, I, I became interested uh, in all of this, well, honestly, because the, these guys were sitting on my floor, right? And I had to have lunch with them. And then we talked about our research. But the second main point is that, I mean, a main issue in health is that people don't particularly like to talk about, say, illnesses or about many health-related issues, right? I mean, you only deal with that if you really have to, and otherwise you are happy that you don't have to, right? And this is also the main problem of prevention, right? You need to deal with some kind of medication or treatment, although you are not ill, right? So I don't want to deal with vaccination or stuff like that. So I think uh, by using gamified elements and immersive technology, we have the potential to, I mean, I'm not saying that we should replace all classic, uh, say, health communication, 
but we may make it more attractive to certain kind of people, right? And I mean, what Aska before mentioned as kind of a limitation is also a big strength of this technology because we can engage, say, younger people, particularly young males are the ones who are least interested in, to engage in any kind of uh, health communication. So I believe that these kind of uh, new technologies offer a big potential to have a complementary method that can supplement and um, complement standard communication um, uh, communication pathways. And I really believe there is we should not uh, um, let this possible source unused. Yeah? So this is what, what I strongly believe in, that it can be very useful in health communication. And Aska, how about yourself? I think one of the most uh, important learnings was that um, some of the stuff that we thought would have a tremendous effect showed out to not significant effect. And, and some of the things that we, we figured, uh, wait, this is an interesting design element, we'll, we'll throw that in, uh, turned out to, to, to work great. I mean, as, as Robert explained before, we saw an, a tremendous uh, difference between uh, the traditional uh, tablet version and, and, the, and the virtual uh, version was, which was not something that we necessarily had uh, theorized uh, beforehand. Um, so, so I think on, on one hand, um, you can reuse a lot of uh, material that has been developed for, for other media and reuse a lot of theories that uh, that are known from multimedia psychology. But at the same time, moving into a, a different uh, media with uh, with increased uh, presence and increased immersion. Uh, changes the game. Uh, so so uh, the learning here is that uh, you can't necessarily know exactly uh, what intervention strategies work the best for, for these new media and it, it, it requires research and uh, that's, that's what we've been doing. Uh, it's been great having you both on the show today. It's been fascinating to go through your research and your roles in that, particularly looking at the role of VR to communicate complex issues, to create health behaviours uh, towards vaccinations and understanding things like herd, and herd immunity, and the novel approach to research methods on subject recruitment and the potential for game mechanics to improve that, and importantly, the potential for gamification to transform health education and pro-social behaviour in the future and beyond. Uh, Robert Asker, it's been great having you on the show today and thank you very much for your time thanks for having us it's been a pleasure